I had a, um, a dream two nights ago that Frank Limehouse was here for Pentecost, and he was wearing red trousers and red velvet slippers like you would wear with a smoking jacket. And he was sitting in the silver chair, and he put his feet up on the prayer desk so that everybody could see that he had red shoes and red trousers on. Just It, it, it struck, it, it was a very vivid image for me. Right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and just start and introduce, I'll let Fred introduce himself a little bit, but this is Fred Teardo, who's our director of music and organist here. He's been with us, how long? About a year and a half. About a year and a half, yeah. came to us from St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, where you directed the boys' choir there. The junior boys' choir, The yeah. junior boys' choir, and, um, and now you're in Birmingham. Yeah. Onward and upward. That's right. Okay. And, um, and uh, we are going to talk today about uh, congregational hymn singing. I don't know if what you're going to find out. There's a remarkable history about this that we used to not sing hymns. Uh, and really it was in the 1700s during the great evangelical revivals that hymns began to be written um, and we started singing them. So um, Fred's going to kind of lead us through that and the importance of worship and singing and uh, we'll just have a conversation. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay. Well, let's pray. Uh, come, Holy Spirit, and fill this place uh, that we know when you are lifted up, Lord Jesus, that you draw all men and women unto you. And so, Lord, inhabit the praises of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Fred, what did you, uh, what did you do your dissertation? Fred has his uh, – well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Fred. I don't want to tell it. Let you speak for yourself. Oh, it's fine. Uh, so, uh, as Dean Pearson just said, I have been here now for about a year and a half. That's the first time you've ever called me Dean Pearson, by the way. That's remarkable. <laughs> I figured this was not the forum to be yeah. cavalier. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I've been here, um, a year, Leslie and I, my wife, Leslie and I have been here for a year and a half and absolutely loving it. And, uh, you all have been so supportive and just absolutely wonderful. So thank you for that. What does Leslie do? Leslie is an organist as well. And, uh, Where is she? She's at St. Luke's. Where's that? In Me- <laughs> <laughs> so how did, uh, you know, actually, I'm into, uh, how did, uh, tell us a little about your education and, and how the brief story of how you and Leslie met. Okay, so very, very briefly, decided to become an organist from um, hearing a new organist at uh, our church growing up. Uh, I grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, and then went to conservatory, graduate school, got all my degrees in music, uh, then went straight from graduate school to New York to work at St. Thomas. Uh, I first started there as assistant organist, then became the associate organist, and it was during my time as associate organist that I met Leslie. Um, she had gone to school in Cleveland with my then assistant organist uh, and uh, had just been in town uh, visiting. And uh, he you swooped in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Uh, so it's it's a lot more involved than that, but but it was. It's normally not. It's actually it was it was kind it was kind of funny. The first time I met Leslie, um, Kevin, uh, the assistant organist, was showing her that there are two organs, actually three organs at St. Thomas. She was, he was showing her the the back organ, 
um, gallery organ, and um, I was on my way. It was right before Evensong. I was on my way to the back of the church to practice, and uh, he said, oh, this is Leslie. Oh, hi, Leslie. Nice to meet you. I have to go practice now. Bye. So <laughs> that was sort of our first encounter. We didn't see each other for another nine months, but um, or sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, roughly. So, so you, you got your doctorate, in your master's and your doctorate from Yale? From Yale, uh, undergrad at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right, well, welcome. And Thank you. Is, is Great to be here. Manhattan, Fifth Avenue, is that the farthest south you've ever lived until you moved here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. I hadn't thought of that. No, that's not true, actually. I, lived, I was born in Florida. Um, in Orlando, but only lived there for 10 months. And I think then, that's a suburb of New Jersey. It, it is, yeah. It's, 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 well, it's funny. I've, been, I've, I've lived in all, except for Birmingham, I've lived in all the places in the South that aren't actually considered the South. I lived for a year uh, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, actually. Grand Strand. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's all right. So. Well, good. What were you doing in Myrtle Beach? Were you there for I, bike week? What was happening? <laughs> <laughs> I was five when I, when oh, my parents okay. and I moved there. They, my the dad military? got a job. No, my dad got a job teaching at uh, USC, one of the branches, and just... Um, yeah, USC branch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, he, uh, uh, then my grandfather died, and we decided to move to Connecticut so my grandmother wouldn't effectively be alone, so... Right. Yeah. Can you imagine if you'd grown up in Myrtle Beach? I wouldn't be here. There's no way. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'd be doing, but that turn of events in my life wouldn't have happened, for sure. It's fun to think about. Old. Yeah, it's really yeah. fun to huh. think about. I have well, no idea what I'd be doing, so... Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, what, I mean, what is it about being, uh, what, I mean, you said the inspiration of organists, but what, what drew you into doing what you do? What is it about it that drew you in, and, and what is its significance? Why do you think it's important? What do you feel like your job is, mm-hmm. especially on a Sunday morning? Well, I'll be honest, I felt the sense of vocation and calling right from the beginning. I remember being in the dean's class, uh, uh, over a year ago now, and um, telling my sort of uh, pilgrim's journey, um, and uh, that I said it was on the Feast of the Epiphany, actually, that we had um, that new organist, director of music, who uh, started and is eventually became my uh, organ teacher in high school. And I just, it was inexplicable. I just, I felt it. I knew that this was what I needed to do. It's what I wanted to do. I mean, my father was a jazz pianist and uh, he'd been urging me to take lessons and things like that and I didn't want anything to do with it. It just didn't click um, until that very day. Um, So from the very beginning, it felt like a calling to me. Um, And many years after that, a discernment with what I wanted to do with a music degree and music career. Um, and, you know, they, there's so many um, things that they tell you that you should be doing. Uh, I remember reading a book called um, Fight Your Fear and Win. It's that, um, uh, it's, it's sort of a self-help book, but it's about performance anxiety. Sounds scary. It, it, <laughs> um, and he talks about, the, um, the author is uh, Don Green, uh, and he talks about what, you know, in your profession, doesn't matter what it is, that there are certain people, and I'm sure you can all relate to this, that will tell you, well, this is what you need to do. These are the steps you need to take in order to succeed. And if you don't take these, you know, um, uh, prescribed steps, that you're not going to have a successful career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, isn't it what your, what your gut is telling you, what you're feeling called to do, what you want to do, that, that you know, 
is very, you know, what, what your inner belief is telling you to do. Doesn't that matter at the end of the day? And honestly, that was the sort of uh, a personal uh, epiphany that I came to mm-hmm. was uh, being in a job interview for an academic job and uh, realizing that, uh, it was shortly before coming to the Advent, realizing this is, this is not, what, I wouldn't be in church every Sunday morning. Right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, that was a big step. And then, of course, the Advent opportunity came along, uh, praise the Lord, and it was, um, it's been such a blessing. And I feel, I, I, I look forward to Sunday morning because I feel it's, it's my duty to um, not only lead but um, encourage the uh, singing and uh, the praise of God in song uh, through the, the congregation and through the choir's anthems and such. Do you feel like that there's a, uh, how do you discern, I mean, there seems to be a fine line in a place like the Advent, which has a very high standard when it comes to music, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that it's the, of, of wanting to have a high quality and yet at the same time engaging the congregation in yeah. worship. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it's it's very it's very difficult to, to bridge. And I also have the, the challenge of with the choir, how the, the you know, it's, Though we strive for musical excellence, at the end of the day, it's a ministry. Mm -hmm. And the people are there because they want to be, not because they have to be. And you have to keep that in mind. I mean, the choir in its own sense is its own small group in many respects. Um, And it's a wonderful blessing. But in terms of the congregation, you know, I think part of my job is to discern what is um, sort of good music and bad music. I mean, that becomes very subjective. Do you think we like bad music? No, not at all. (laughs) No, 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 no. And that's one of the great things about being at the Advent is that you do have this rich tradition, not only musically but theologically, of, of um, having very strong foundation in that. And so that really helps. But, you know, part of the reason I get, I get this, asked this question a lot about, you know, well, how do you define good and bad music? Well, it, like I just said, it's very subjective, but there are some sort of ground rules. It's just sort of like uh, theology, you know. You know, you get to make... Um, you, you, you know what's good and what's bad, what doesn't make any sense. You know, I have the eye and the ear for looking at a piece of music and saying, this person is a very good composer. There is thought behind the words. There, um, there's a, a theology, a sound theology behind it, a good doctrine, um, which, of course, that falls into your, into your uh, realm as well. But in terms of the music, you know, I can look at another piece of music and say, this person never took a music lesson in their life, you know, and this is just bad music. That doesn't mean that people who don't take music lessons write bad music. That's not what I'm saying. But the two can together happen often. So um, you, how is that <laughs> how um, you know the tra- I mean St. Thomas Fifth Avenue has a very very definite niche. If you've ever been there, um, you can watch Whit Stillman's Metropolitan and there's the great Christmas Eve scene where the young girl is crying because the stupid redhead doesn't get it. Uh, he's not swooped in. Another St. Thomas love moment, and um, but it's it's very. I mean, it's it's a high church worship service, and and here we we're a cathedral on the one hand, and there's mm-hmm. that tough balance that we're the cathedral on one hand, and we have cathedral style worship, uh, but because we we have such a deep appreciation for um, the great hymns of the church, uh, did you think, gosh, these people sing Baptist hymns? Or what did you, how was the transition for you? Are you still getting used to it? Um, no, 
Uh, no, I, I think, I mean, there are a lot of the hymns, obviously, because the tradition uh, being in the Church of England is very much this, this, coming from the Church of England is very much the same. Um, so a lot, there's a lot of common ground. Uh, of course, you know, with any two given uh, parishes, there's going to be slight theological differences. And, and uh, I mean, that. Who do you like better? <laughs> Just kind of, um, don't answer that. Right. So next, when, next question. Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> because you, you, have to, you have to get to know the car. I mean, I right. even think about this. So you kind of exactly. have to know the congregation. And, I mean, it's almost as if now we can look at him and be like, you people aren't going to sing this. Uh, it just, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. Um, and at the same time, wanting to convey um, a theological message. Mm-hmm. And so we take for granted that we're singing hymns in church like Watts and Wesley and Newton and people like that, Cooper. Uh, but, but that always wasn't the case. When, what did they do before? Tell, tell me the story of how hymn singing came to the fore. Well, it's, it's, let's see. How long do we have? Um, it's, it's, this is about a four-minute question. Yes. Okay. Um, so... Obviously, congregations didn't always sing, and maybe that's not an obvious thing. I shouldn't say obviously. Um, when thinking about the Roman church, the, a lot of the hymn singing, in fact, all of the singing was done by the choir. There were hymns, so to speak, much like the Veni Creator Spiritus hymn that we just sang for communion at 9 o'clock uh, that would have been sung uh, during the liturgy by the choir. Um, so, the, so congregational singing is really... Uh, a product of the Reformation, really. Um, You had some devotional uh, poetry and verse before that, um, but nothing that was really in the church uh, that wasn't considered a hymn, so to speak. But um, in the Reformation, of course, you know, on the continent, you had Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. They were the big guys. And uh, for Luther... Uh, he he did kind of dwell on those old Latin hymns like Veni Crater Spiritus and uh, attempted to sort of para- not not so much paraphrase but use them as a starting point to teach the faith and teach his own theology and did write his own verse and write his new things. A mighty fortress is our God, being the you know the big the war, the war song of the Reformation, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, but Calvin and Swingley didn't, which feel- is in the New Roman Catholic Hymnal. Yes. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, it's very funny. I know, exactly. And people don't think about these things, right. And there are all sorts of hymns like that with that sort of connotation. Um, I think the Old Hundredth has a very bad connotation when it comes to Catholics in the history. And we can talk about Old Hundredth in a second. But um, Calvin and Swingley didn't feel that way at all. They felt that if it didn't come from Scripture... It didn't belong in the psalm church. singers. So they were so, so they became psalm singers because you know it, it says that we should sing the psalms. So they came up with a psalmody, um, and that's where the Genevan Psalter. If you've ever heard of that, that's where that comes from. Uh, and in terms of the English church, uh, Cranmer was faced with this dilemma: which way do we go? And though in in several points theologically, I think you know Luther sort of they sort of went down that road. Song-wise or singing-wise, they went down the Calvinist road and decided we will take um, what's in the scripture and just sing psalms uh, and use metric psalms, much like in Europe. Uh, And that's where you get things like the old Scottish chant and some of the older Anglican chants that we still sing today. They come from that. But um, part of reason, uh, Cranmer's reasoning for that was because he tried he tried to take one of the old Latin hymns, Salva Feste Dies, Hail Thee Festival Day, which actually, as it appears in our hymnal now, wasn't translated until the end of the uh, 19th century into the 20th century. 
um, when it appeared in the English hymnal. Uh, he tried, and he said, this is garbage. This is, it's not good. It doesn't do the original text justice. I can't get it to match the music. We're not bothering. So that was a big reason for that. Um, and then you, had, you saw, actually, uh, um, uh, Coverdale, uh, who tra- translated the first printed Bible in English and the, from which the choir sings the Psalter, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful translation of the Psalter, but he actually made an attempt at the first hymn book. It was called Ghostly Psalms and Spiritual Songs from the Scriptures, and it failed. Flew off the shelves. No, (laughs) not at all. Uh, Henry VIII banned it, actually, because it was bad. It wasn't a good rendering. Uh, And uh, the first official sort of hymn Nitty book in the English church was the whole book of Psalms in 1562, right after the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which was all metrical Psalms. This was uh, put together by uh, Sternhold and Hopkins. And then this lasted all the way until the English Civil War. Well, I should say until Mary, and then, then we had the English Civil War, um, and the church was, it was Puritan. Um, and so everything was sort of disbanded for the time being. But then after the Restoration, things sort of got back on track. And then we had the second edition called the New Version of the whole Book of Psalms uh, put together by Nam Tate, who we all know is the author of While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night. Um, and now you're, you're seeing an emergence of New Testament scripture being in, in the hymns. But... Um, Hymns as we know them today didn't really come until the time of Isaac Watts. He was the real, revol- the first revolutionary in that regard and the first sort of evangelical figure, I would say, in terms of the text of the hymns because he felt that the hymns, um, his strong feeling was that Scripture um, was God's word to us, but what about our word to God? And what about, you know, the prayer book? If, if, if man-made sentences could do for the prayer book, why not? man-made verse for the, for the hymns. Uh, but he had some... Uh, and he was a nonconformist. He was, he was not a Church of England minister. Right. And so um, the, uh, the, the main thing for him was that um, if it was a psalm, it was a paraphrase of a psalm, but that his effort was to make it Christological. Right. That, was, that was the big thing. Remind us of some of uh, Watts' hymns that we uh, sing today. Oh, God, Our Help in Ages Past would be one of the um, uh, most famous. That's a paraphrase of Psalm 90. Um, I'll praise my maker while I breath, uh, a paraphrase of Psalm 146. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, being an example of something coming from the New Testament and really Christ-centered. And that was new. That was revolutionary, really, in terms of the, the hymns, a focus on J- Jesus rather than on God, as right. it were, on Christ than rather than God. Yeah. What... Um and, and so Isaac Watts is writing these hymns, and especially over in America, uh, John Wesley was printing his brother's hymns. He was making that happen. And even though they were Church of England ministers, uh, clearly the Methodists were beginning to make their own way, and they were the hymns were being used in meetings. And even letters being written from America to Isaac Watts saying, I preached uh, a stump revival in the backwoods of America, which was not even Alabama at that point. It was uh, Georgia. West Georgia, yeah. yeah. And um, and uh, it was a, a great service. I preached my little heart out. But when we began to sing your hymns, he said, there, there just there wasn't a dry in the house. And and we've got to figure out a way to, to make this 
make this happen. So in, in America, it's always been sort of part of our church DNA that those great revival hymns have been there. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about it is that the great thing about those old hymns, and I don't want to put down new music because I think there's some new stuff out, but you know, a lot of it sounds like Jesus is my boyfriend. And um, I mean, if you, can take, if you can take the name of Jesus out of a song and insert the name of your wife and it still works, that's a problem. That's right. Yeah. So or Jesus isn't in it at yeah, all. Yeah, that's right. That's not so um, uh, Paul's always say there's an episode of South Park you should watch. But anyway, that uh, does get that. But the, the thing that's amazing is that uh, the theology is, is what they're saying about God is true and what they're saying about the, their own human experience is true. And so many of those hymns were birthed out of real life events. And we sort of sing them on Sunday and we think, oh, that, that might be uh, my favorite. But, uh, but it, it's the, the experience of, of a life in Christ coupled with the truth of the scriptures. Are there, I mean, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the hymns and put, put them in context? Yeah, um, well, I'm, you, you might be able to speak to this more than I could. I was just about to say a point, though, about what you were saying about the experience hymns. You know, in now, in the 21st century, we think of uh, sort of experience hymns, uh, freedom hymns as sort of the African-American spiritual, but really the Wesleyan hymn and the evangelical hymn was the forerunner to that. It really was about the Christian experience. Yeah, let's, get si- let's get sidetracked, and we'll come back to the hymn stories in a minute, but um, what was the response of, of the Church of England and more traditional congregations when, when these hymns were being sung? Terrible. It was, it was awful. They uh, very much, for the reasons that, that um, the Calvinists thought, you know, we can't be singing this in church, it wasn't scriptural. Even if it was a paraphrase of scripture, it wasn't directly from the scripture. And that it took a very long time in the Church of England, uh, mainstream Church of England, the conservative sect especially, for, for these hymns to be introduced. And it really wasn't, and I'm going to really skip ahead, but it really wasn't until the Oxford Movement when you really started to see the development of the liturgical hymn as, as congregational song in the Church of, of uh, England. When there was this uh, direct, uh, not opposition, but there were two camps of hymns. There was the evangelical hymn, which was the hymn of the believer. And then there was the liturgical hymn, which was the, uh, the hymn of the worshiper. Um, and seeing this, this subtle difference. Um, and you didn't really have any serious hymnals in the Church of England. I believe to this day there is no official hymnal in the Church of England. I mean, there's the New English hymnal. There's hymns ancient and modern, but you'll see differences in the parishes, mm. I believe. Um, it's not like the Episcopal Church that has the hymnal 1982 to go off of. Um, but hymns ancient and modern, which appeared at the end of the 19th century. Was it's a little more ancient than modern now. Yeah, that's right. Um, but that was the first sort of um, uh, real hymnal that you could get from John Mason Neal. Um, and he, and uh, he did a lot of translations of, of hymns that we sing uh, today, um, trying to think, John, uh, of the Father's love begotten, um, uh, Ah, holy Jesus, O sacred head surrounded uh, or sore wounded. Um, those were uh, all translations um, that he did. Uh, so, Are there any particular hymns that you think, I love this hymn, and why? 
Well, I don't have any real favorite hymns. I mean, I, I love, I, I've always loved hymns. Um, so it's really hard to pick a favorite. Uh, one that really resounds with me, and I guess it has something to do with the story behind it, is uh, Her, uh, Herbert Howell's music to uh, All My Hope on God is Founded, uh, which was uh, written by, I have it written down, anyway, forget this, um, uh, Robert Seymour Bridges. Um, I'm sorry, he's the one who did O Sacred Head and All Holy Jesus. I, I was thinking of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel for John Mason Neal. That was the one I was getting confused with. Um, that, that, those texts were written right around the same time all, all, um, all My Hope on God is Founded and the, the hymn tune Michael. Michael uh, is called that because Herbert Howell's son, Michael, died when he was nine years old. He contracted an illness and then died three days later. And it was very, very devastating for Herbert Howells. Uh, and Michael was one of his outlets of grief. Um, he also wrote the famous Hymnus Paradisi and the Requiem also as sort of outlets for his, his grief in that. But, uh, but there's, it, there's a wonderful, uh, I, I just love that, that story that, that he wrote the music for that. Um, a couple of hymn stories about the authors of hymns that I can think of. Um, there's the we were talking about this the other day. There's the, uh, about some hymn stories. Um, there's uh, the hymn that I don't um, really know very well. I didn't grow up with, but it is well with my soul mm-hmm. uh, by Horatio Spafford. Do, do any of you know the story about that hymn um, that he can was? Your hymn on the yes. Um, he was uh, in his, with his family in Chicago in the 19th century, and then there was the great Chicago fire, and uh, he had been wanting to go to uh, Europe for a while with his family um, to do some um, hymn study and thing like, things like that. And so uh, they were all set to make the journey across the pond, um, and something came up at the last minute and he had to stay behind but he sent his his wife and his four daughters ahead of him to uh, to just go because he didn't want to disappoint them well the ship that they were on uh, sunk actually it was it, it, something happened and it, it, I think it, it was underwater in 18 minutes or something like that and the only survivor of the family was his wife that sent him a telegram saying survived alone um, or, or Stand, stand alone or something like that and so he hurried his journey to go over there and so he was on the ship and it, he, was, he was called to the, the bridge and uh, where the captain told him that he believed that this was the, the spot where the ship had sunk and um, it was that very night that he wrote the hymn text for all uh, when sorrow is, like sea billows that's roll. right exactly it is well with my it soul it is well with my soul so yeah, there's this idea, and uh, there's a method to our madness um, that when we sing a hymn, and I, I want you to be uh, here's here's a little insider uh, tip: uh, if you don't like the hymns on Sunday, whoever's preaching has picked them out. So complain directly to the preacher. I encourage you to do that. Somebody recently responded. Fred does a very good job of picking them out, and then we kind of look at them and say, "Well, this is kind of because Fred's not a mind reader. He doesn't know what we're going to say when we get up in the pulpit." So we try to work with things that are congruent with our sermon. And someone recently shot back, "All the sermons look great," and I responded to the preacher, 
No, they don't. <laughs> One of them doesn't. Look at it again. Uh, somebody because it was a very hard hymn to sing. But so there's a, there's a real method to our madness. And, you know, we do things in a traditional way at the Advent, not for tradition's sake, right? We're not, we're not nostalgic, although I'm prone to nostalgia. But it, it's, there's this method to our madness is that they convey the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the message of the gospel, and it meets us where we are. And so, of course, half of all the great hymns of the church never made it in this hymnal, and you've got some crazy Aztec chant in here somewhere. <laughs> Whatever. But, I mean, you know they're going to leave something out. But it is well with my soul is not in there. And, but, but when you sing it, you, you can almost you feel that you feel the connection, and um, one of the great hymns of the church, uh, which is getting a lot of bad press these days, "Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus," right? "Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus" was written by uh, George Duffield, and uh, George Duffield was a, a, an Episcopal minister in the 1800s in Philadelphia, and a young Stephen Ting, who uh, literally preached to congregation of, of thousands, they were building a new church. In, in Philadelphia just for him. And they had this wonderful ministry of, of getting returning uh, Civil War veterans that, that weren't able to, uh, to get work and things like that. And, and so they were putting people to work, and they had these mills outside of Philadelphia. And young Stephen Ting went out there to inspect the mills, and he got his arm caught in, um, in, in the mill works, and he lost his arm, and he bled to death and died. Well, of course, if he bled to death, he died. Well, he bled to death, and uh, his final words to the person over him were, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And Duffield preached his funeral. And in that, he, he penned these words. So um, where is it? Uh, it's third verse. I third think. verse, yeah. Um, uh, the arm of flesh will fail you. Right, literally. literally. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so... I mean, the, uh, there's there's always a, a story behind uh, the story, but but most of these hymns are rooted again in these real life experiences that are true. I mean, I run into a lot of folks, especially college age folks, who come to me and say things like, "You know, I, I'm a Christian, and yet I'm struggling with this area or that thing, and and I just don't think that I can be a Christian and struggle with these things." And and I. Have you read the Psalms? <laughs> and have you, and, and uh, a lot of it in, in worship today tends to be a projection, right? It tends to be an ideal, and we want to put that out there. Yes, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, but how does it speak to the true life experience? I mean, I talk a lot about uh, the only hymnal, uh, which mm -hmm, uh, right. Newton and uh, William Cooper, and I think all, William Cooper was constantly plagued with depression. And, um, and it was a miracle that they ever finished that hymnal. And if they hadn't, uh, we wouldn't have There is a Fountain Filled with Blood or Amazing Grace, as far as that goes. That would have, oh, for a Closer Walk. Oh, For a Closer Walk. So Cooper made it in the hymnal a couple times. Uh, but, um, but again, just the, the honesty in these hymns. And if you go back, and I, I would encourage you, you can get it online and get it for free. Uh, look at the only hymnal. And you read these hymns, and they're so... Real, I mean, to almost be raw, where you think we could never sing this in church, right? We because it's it's too honest, uh, it, it's it's too too honest, and um, uh, I, I've talked enough. So um, so 
in, in that, I think that for a lot of people, when, when they're singing in church, one, unless you like to sing, you just kind of, you know, bury your head in the hymnal and you kind of do the watermelon. You kind of lip sync it. And, um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, when, when of all, like that is, that is a moment, and it may not engage everybody, but that's really meant to engage, like you're actually uh, directly, you're, you're worshiping, mm-hmm. you're worshiping the Lord. And uh, he inhabits the praises of his people. Uh, when Jesus is lifted up, he draws men and, and women unto him. And you can, I, I don't know if you all know this, I, I can tell the disposition of the congregation by the singing. Worst singing Sunday ever, the Sunday after Alabama lost to LSU at Alabama. And I thought it was going to be empty, but y'all came creeping in at 3 a.m. because it took that long to get to Tuscaloosa. And a lot of you showed up in church. And it was like, I mean, should we just get the casket out? What's, you know, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, nobody talked about it. And, uh, and, of course, there was redemption. There was redemption in the end uh, in the national championship game. But, uh, but it was, I mean, you could, you could tell that, that they were somewhere else. Iron Bowl too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, how do you? Um, I mean, on the one hand, you don't want to be fake and say, you know, I'm really upset. But, but actually, uh, if you feel like you're far away from the Lord, um, worship Him, and and He'll be close to you. You'll feel His closeness in that. And so, uh, talk, give give us some some helpful hints or or what, what your thoughts on how to engage us a little bit more. You know, I was uh, talking to the clergy about choral Eucharist and, uh, you know, how it it can be very easy to get caught up in the difficulty of singing the sung parts of the service. Uh, And uh, Stephen Schaefer, my predecessor, uh, I remember uh, Canna Gibbs telling me the story that he had given him very sound advice that I... I say the same that you know don't worry about what's on you know don't I mean worry about what's on the page but don't worry about how you're going to do or any of that just worship and um, I think that is really the best advice that I can give you know when we sing a new hymn and I do try to incorporate some new hymns sometimes and they're actually old hymns uh, and one thing that we, we do say is that you know these new hymns were or these old hymns were new at one point these yeah. hymns that we know so well um, love divine, all loves excelling. That was new at one point, you know, uh, and uh, and resisted as history shows. Um, I mean, Wesley was taking a lot of text from his brother and yes. setting it to to bar songs. Mm-hmm. That's right, and and actually, you know, it's funny because Charles Wesley wrote over well over six thousand hymns, but. He actually, I mean, he got everything from John Wesley in terms of what was behind them. He became the poet of the Methodist revival. But, uh, you know, John Wesley actually started writing hymns before, uh, he, when he was a missionary. He, he, he had put his sort of first hymn book together. And several of the hymnals that they had uh, produced together either had one name or the other or both of their names. Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's what I would say, you know, because there are a lot of wonderful hymns in this in this hymnal that our hymnal that we don't know that are old treasures that are very theologically sound and right up our alley as it were but we just don't know them as a congregation so try to worship don't worry about how you're doing and and 
and give it a chance, too. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's I, not going to come immediately. I yeah, I always think it's, it's very – our, our opening call out for the communion service is Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open and all desires known. And yet I, I fall on this, too, because some of you criticize us for it because somebody once said that we all looked really worn out one Sunday, uh, the clergy, and I just thought, well, shoot. Uh, so we fake it. We smile. Uh, no, we don't. But it, it made me aware of that. But uh, you're probably a little bit like me where you, you sort of think, okay, I'm in worship. It's time to flip the worship switch on. And even though what you're thinking about is why won't my child put on their shoes? Like why was it so difficult to put on the shoes? And I wish my husband would help me get my children to church on Sunday, which I never do. I never help Lauren get children to church on Sunday because I'm working. Uh, but, um, but – I mean, you've got a thousand different things on your mind, and yet you think, okay, now now's the time to get it together and focus, just focus. When our opening collect for purity says, God wants to hear about the shoes. Actually, he wants mm-hmm. to meet us in a place of honesty and in the realm of reality. There's not like Christian world and then or Christian mind and non-Christian mind as far as that goes. You're not two people, but you're one person. And, and that's actually where God desires to meet you. And I bet for y'all, if I were to ask, what's your favorite hymn, uh, it has some real personal connection to you. And it's able to speak to you at, at a level that is spiritual. It's not just, oh, that's pretty. Uh, but, but there's some uh, deep meaning. I mean, the fact that uh, I'll still look out and, and we'll be singing a hymn and I'm just kind of trudging along and I'll, I'll see somebody weeping. And... I realize that there's that that connection. And I've even seen non-Christians weep in church because of some sort of connection with a hymn, whether it was sung at one of their parents' funerals or uh, whether it's um, or whether they learned it growing up. And I, one of the things that amazes me at the end of people's lives, even if they compl- if they've lost their mind, do you know the two things that I, people never ever forget? The Lord's Prayer. And hymns. All right, so they, they have they have Holy Spirit glue on them. All right, they're sticky. They stick to you uh, in a way that that, that uh, other things other things don't. Fred, in in our remaining minutes, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? And we're giving everybody a peek behind the curtain. Um, I don't know. Uh. No, you did well. <laughs> Good job. Thanks, Fred, for being here with us. No, Fred's the I, expert, so. Oh, hardly. I was just. Yeah. Doing, doing my well, you, you better be. Work. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Any questions, comments? Yes. Fred, the, the music here at the Advent truly is wonderful, and I want to thank you for all that you do to help make that so. Thank you. My question to you, though, has to do a little bit with your attitude toward us. And some of the greatest music that's played in there is the closing voluntary where sometimes by the time you get through with a really great piece of music, there's nobody left to hear it. Is yeah. that a disappointment? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't view it. That's a great question. I, I don't view it as a performance. I view it as very much a part of the service. Um, you know, it actually it, it bothers me sometimes when I, I hear applause at the end of the service. It really... Yeah. Well, no one's not, ever applauded for me. Not, not. <laughs> b- bothers is the wrong word. It's just it. It feels for me. It's part of the worship experience. Um, and uh, bothers the wrong word. Don't get me wrong. It's just 
Um, but I also realized, especially at the end of the 9 o'clock, there are a lot of people trying to get to Sunday school. There is that practicality. That is, that is a, a truth. Uh, I do feel like at the 11, there are a few more people who do stick, stick around and, and, and listen. Uh, but I think it, I, it's, it's a sort of universal issue, honestly. I mean, everywhere I've been, um, it's been, it's been an issue. The voluntary is not, it's, it's there to get people out. In France, they called it the sortie, which is exit, you know. So it's literally music to get people out of the church, so... Um, but I do, I do appreciate the people who do um, stay behind like yourself and, and listen, and it makes it worth it. Just if one person is there, if I'm able to minister to that one person by playing that, that organ piece, um, and th- then it's all worth it. It's all worth it. This might be too long of a question, uh, but could you talk about the process of how they put the 1982 hymnal together? Like who, who did that? You can blame committees for that. No, I'm just kidding. I, well, not really, but it's... <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the predecessor of the hymnal 1982 is the 1940, uh, which was uh, sort of the first... I don't know if it was the first, but the, a, a good real stab at putting an American hymnal together for the, what was called in the 1940 hymnal the Protestant Episcopal Church. Um, and uh, so the 1982, 40 years later... They took a look at what was still being sung, what wasn't, trying to incorporate new music, some new old music. Uh, there are a lot of opinions and a lot of um, uh, d- differing viewpoints on what should be and what shouldn't be. There was talk in the last uh, few years about a new hymnal revision that's been, been thrown out, as far as I know, uh, but with much the same sort of thing. For example, a lot of people are angry that, that certain hymns were not... Um, uh, included in the hymnal 1982, uh, and that this might be an opportunity to get them back in. So it's just changing, changing fads, changing tastes, yeah. just like anything else. Yeah, and it's not the end-all, be-all. I mean, the Advent will often print a hymn and put it in as a leaflet. So we're not that. Ba- I mean, if someone says, "Well, it's not in the 1982 hymnal," well, good grief! If that's the Blue Ribbon standard, yes. Um. It is. I think overall, it's a good, it's a definite improvement over 1940. Absolutely. Uh, I hope this will be an easy question. Maybe not. Can you th- can you think of a hymn that either theologically or doctrinally is such a stinker that you Time's would up. never want to <laughs> sing it? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I'll 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 talk of, if if you if you'll let me about um, "Come Labor On," which is a hymn that. Um, well, it's just it's a hymn. Yeah, no, it's it's a, I mean, it's the it's literally the St. Thomas Choir School anthem. Literally, Teach Archers Noble. Uh, wrote the music for for that text that became the anthem of St. Thomas. But, you know, it's a very, it, it's a slippery slope. I mean, there, there are two ways of looking at it. Some folks look at it like it's vocation. Others say that it emphasizes works too much, you know, and that is not really part of our theology. So it's, it's, it's really, it's tricky. Um, I wouldn't call it a stinker. It's wonderful music. I love, the music is very rousing. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's a gray area. It can be really, really. Um, but there are plenty of stinkers in the hymnal. There are plenty, <laughs> and we don't sing them. Yeah, and we don't sing there, them. There are also some stinkers that we do. Like I mean, some of it is that you you are so attached to certain certain hymns, and so I mean, I think one of my least favorite is "Lift High the Cross," and people love it. People yeah. absolutely love it. Yeah. And and it's so, but but you know, like we sing it here, right? So you notice that it's not like we're trying to. 
a lot of it has to do with, with preference. I'm trying to think if there's... Well, there you go. So I, I think that there are some... I, I find it actually more of a trial with the new music. Like, I have a running list of we're never allowed to sing this song uh, for, for the 5 o'clock. And, uh, and so I actually find it, find it harder. I think another a lot of people say, oh, well, we always sing this hymn or that hymn. But, but I'll tell you, it's the golden oldies that, that people start singing. And they, you all really get behind them. And, and that's, that's really, and really great to, to hear. Recurring theological themes, yeah. too. You know, so there's a pool of hymns that fit that. So, okay. Go in peace and love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Andrew. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun.